Hello, this is the Made Musings podcast, the podcast that focuses on everyday issues, illnesses, and disabilities that affect everyday people. Find us anywhere you listen to your podcast and on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Made Musings. Please subscribe. My guest today is based in Canada. She is someone I would best describe as multi-talented. She held significant positions in the International Rugby Women's Championships. So, welcome to Meet Musings Podcast, Courtney. Hi. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you please introduce yourself for the benefit of those who don't know you at all or have never heard anything about you? Tell sure. us about the many hats and the different roles you played and you occupied in the rugby international scene. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Courtney Malcolm. Um, I'm from Nova Scotia. I grew up here in Canada and in a small town, but now I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is, you know, our, our big city here on the East Coast. It's not that big, but um, it has a lot of character. And after, you know, jumping around to a few different careers, trying to figure out what really speaks to me and what, what I want to do and kind of leave behind here in the world. Uh, I landed on life coaching. And so that's what I'm working towards right now is uh, in the middle of preparing to launch my business and, you know, help other people to reach the goals that they've been trying to reach, but with a little bit more uh, neuroscience background and support to kind of help support the psychology and mindset you need to achieve those goals and do it at a quicker rate instead of, you know, waiting around and hoping something will change. So rugby is like a big part of, it's a big part of my identity growing up. I started in high school and was lucky enough to play at a really prestigious uh, rugby university in Nova Scotia, St. of X. And we, as a team, had a really great program and were able to secure a spot at the national championships in the Canadian inner university sport national championships every year. So we were able to, to win twice while I was there and kind of created like an elite kind of attraction for rugby uh, in women's sport in Nova Scotia and in Canada. So that was really cool. And I was able to play with a lot of, a lot of amazing, talented women who some are in the Olympics now, some are playing professional rugby overseas, some within Canada. So it's really interesting to see all of these awesome women succeed in sport, especially such a a sport that traditionally women weren't really invited (laughs) to play since it's so physical. But it is a really, really amazing atmosphere. And it's a sport that kind of brings a different element of being a family, even after games, you know, that's kind of what's so great about the the rugby realm is after a game, you're playing your opponents and then you get together for a beer after. And it's just kind of a very uh, disciplined game, but it's exciting for people to watch because of the physicality as well. But yeah, it, it was a really big part of my life. And um, I think... Uh, I've been really blessed to be able to, to meet the people that I met and develop some of the skills and attitudes that I was able to learn from the sport. Oh, yeah. With it being such a physical sport, how did you get into it in the first instance as a woman? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, I started off playing rug, um, rugby in grade 11. I was always playing soccer and my dad was a little bit devastated. <laughs> he had trained <laughs> me and coached me my whole life to play soccer or football maybe. And so when I chose to go try out for the rugby team at the university, he was a little bit, he was a little bit upset, <laughs> but I think that uh, my dad and my grandfather, actually everyone in my family has always been such a big proponent in my sport career. So anything that I was excited about, they were excited about as well. It w- There was, you know, times in university where, you know, there's assumptions and judgments of, you know, like rugby women, you know, like being, you know, bigger girls or like really stronger, really aggressive. But I think the beauty of the sport outside of those judgments is the fact that like everyone can play it. There, there's a position for everyone and there's a job for everyone and it really matters how you kind of collectively come together as a team rather than just having standout players. So that's what I really like about the sport the most is that it really empowers women to, we are all made differently and we're all built differently and we all have different talents. And I think rugby really is a sport that showcases that, especially for women. Right. When you say it's empowering for women, how does rugby empower women? I think it it allows you to be, you know, like your more masculine self on the field. And, you know, like without judgment, because like, I feel like a lot, a lot of sports, like women are always, always judged for being masculine. Um, And then if they are feminine, they get judged for, you know, being too scandalous or something, you know, like Venus, Venus and Serena are like a, a prime example of how much scrutiny they get for being, you know, like a prowess at their sport, but then, oh, too masculine to be a woman or you're too strong you know like it, it just kind of there's judgments and expectations of what you should be as a woman and like sometimes the sport like aspect can contradict that of what society thinks you should be um and I think that in the rugby environment there's so much more support for just embracing who you are as a person and not having those kind of expectations or you know like kind of like side expectations and I think it really like helps people embrace their bodies in a way that is positive and you know like using your body to your advantage in how you can be better at at the sport and and hone in on your skills and I think that's really empowering and it's really a big reason why I got into coaching is because it's it's a sport that everyone can play so in high school um, it's really great to get girls involved who you know normally don't don't find a sport that they connect with but because it's such a great a great family kind of atmosphere and that's something that coaches like really push is you're working together up the field together every inch is made by coming together as a team and and doing your individual jobs and there's a lot of power in that and it just kind of like collectively brings women together in a way that you're able to embrace your your strength and your power and your your aggression that you know normally in society wouldn't be celebrated and in the sport it is so it's another way to kind of like uh, reclaim your power in terms of physicality and be able to kind of bring that some of that back into society with you and you know building some confidence in who you are and what you're able to accomplish and contribute. Oh thank you for that. How does your current career relate with your rugby experience? Oh very closely linked. I think one of the biggest struggles for me during my rugby career was I 
struggle with a lot of mental health issues. And at the time, I didn't really recognize or understand what was going on. And it kind of took a long time for, you know, things to kind of come into more clarity and understanding and, you know, self progression. And what I noticed looking back based on what I've learned so far is that I really identified as an athlete for my whole life. You know, I've always been playing sports. I've always been energetic. I've always really loved, you know, being an athlete. And because I, you know, had success, you know, anything that we have success with in our lives, you know, we really attach to our identity. So I took on, you know, that I'm an athlete and that is, you know, who I am. It's what I have to offer. And growing up with that, um, I think I really didn't, I didn't really foster the other things that I could have really grown from. So when I stopped, uh, I, or not stopped, but when I used all my eligibility uh, in to play in university, that was basically the end of my elite rugby career. I wasn't um, going to pursue you know, trying to to make Team Canada or move on to senior rugby uh, in Canada, I I was interested in starting a career. And I found it very difficult to transfer over from being an athlete and that being, you know, my main identity and my main source of, you know, self-esteem and confidence to beginning to start a new career in teaching. And I really suffered from not being able to uh, identify with myself outside of being an athlete. So I, I kind of came up empty in terms of what, what I brought to the table if I wasn't an athlete. So it, that was how I spent my time. It was all of my friends. It was, you know, I, I surrounded my whole life around it. So when I, when I stepped out of that comfort zone, I was really lost because I hadn't really spent a lot of time learning about myself and who I am. And, you know, in the midst of having a mental illness at the time, it can be really confusing. So I think that that's really important. And that's, you know, what I kind of bring to the coaching environment is I work as an assistant coach with uh, a few teams. And I think mostly that's what my role is, is I I kind of help bring the confidence and self-esteem to the players, like bring it out of themselves and kind of support them in their learning process when they're learning a new a new game a new sport a new rule to kind of help them feel like this is where they're supposed to be and you know it is a learning process and you're not going to gain the skills right away but we include a lot of mentality and mindset into everything we do to help support and grow the player as a person and not just as an athlete oh thank you so much that is such a big role to take on but one thing I noticed from your description is that you are constantly surrounded by people in a buzzing environment and you seem to have a lot of activities going on at different points in your life. But you mentioned that you had a mental illness. What was that about? I started developing like symptoms of anxiety and depression when I was in I would say my fourth and fifth year university where they just became, they became so prominent that I couldn't sweep them under the rug like I had been for a while. And it really forced me to kind of reflect and and look at myself and see like, is this normal? Is this what's going on with me? Am I making it up? You kind of watch everyone else around you do things with ease and of course, that's an assumption. You never really know how everyone's doing inside, of course, um, which is why I was able to hide, you know, my illness so well. But it basically, I was able to hide it so well that I was kind of denying it myself. 
And so it took me a while to, you know, be able to come to terms with it myself and then be able to seek help, whether that was a friend that I told I wasn't feeling the best or having someone come to a doctor appointment with me, just things that were supportive in a way that, you know, I was trying to figure things out and I didn't know what was going on, but I just knew it wasn't right. And you know that that's happening when you're in a room surrounded by, you know, all your favorite people and you still feel alone. And mostly that's just because you're doing it alone. You're trying to do it alone. So you feel very lonely in that endeavor. So that was something I learned uh, throughout that process is the people that are surrounding you or the support system that you do have, they are there to help you. And they're more hurt by you hiding the fact that you were hurting than they are shocked about what you're going through. So it's always worth telling the people around you that what you feel safe with, because in the end, they just want you to be happy. So if you're able to share that with them, you're going to have more support than just trying to do it alone. Oh, thank you. And uh, that sounds very emotional. I'm really sorry for what you went through. It sounds like it's a very emotional time that you went through. In the eyes of the public, it would seem that you had it all or that everything was going on well, but you were constantly struggling. Yeah, it was... um... I think that that's one thing that a lot of people who are kind of coming to terms with the fact that they have mental illnesses, they have been, become professional actors. That's what I say. I, I was a professional actor. I was so good at playing the role of what I thought I should be doing and how I thought I should be acting because I didn't feel it from the inside. So I kind of had to make it up. <laughs> um, and it, it's not like I appreciate that you say that you feel for me but at the same time I think that I wouldn't change it I learned so much about myself in the process and because it you know mental illness is it can be short term it can be long term but I think the the most important lesson that I can share with anyone is what you resist persists and so if you resist the signals that your body is telling you or that your mind is telling you or you know, you, you feel these symptoms, but you think, no, no, it couldn't be me. But listen to your body because it's telling you what you need to do and what you need to change and where you're hurting, whether it's your mind or your physical body. And I think that a lot of times we are so trained to ignore those signals and push through to get to whatever the goal is we're trying to reach that we ignore all the, all the, you know, the, the red flags along the way in order to get to that goal. But in the end, we're missing a lot of pieces of ourselves that really, really important to our own development and our own personal growth and are some of the lessons that we need to learn to, to be better, to be the better version of ourselves that we're usually searching for. Thank you. I really appreciate that honesty. Yes, everybody wants to be the best. I think most people really, not everybody, Mm-hmm. Most people want to be the best at what they at mm-hmm. what they do, and they want to be the best version of themselves. But that constant push to be the best, to be an achiever in the eyes of the public, to mm-hmm. other people, you want to be an achiever. You want to be, oh yes, I've I've actually arrived. That's the word. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm here. That's me. I'm the, yeah. I'm the best here. We, we tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Oh, so much. 
endless. Yeah, endless <laughs> pressures. And I think yeah. sometimes it's just not really helpful to do that to ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, like, I think we have this idea and I don't know how we all have it, but we really do. We all agreed on this at some yeah. point. Yeah. Like we all agreed that like it's, it takes a lot of work and it, and you're going to, you know, you're going to suffer along the way a little bit, but it's all going to be worth it in the end. Right. Like that's what we've learned, I think. And I think that's from our previous generations is, you know, like you work hard, you're going to be rewarded for that work, um, which is true. But I think that the hardest thing we have to kind of admit to ourselves uh, just as humans, because we are imperfect is that we cannot reach perfectionism. It's an, unattainable goal but we talk about it as if it's attainable you know we 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 romanticize it and glorify like being perfect but the definition of perfect isn't the same for everyone so we're all reaching for this same goal that isn't the same for everyone (laughs) but we talk about it as if it is right because we all have this like collective idea of what success looks like and for different generations it looks different but for the most part it's you know like the family the house you know the job um and once you have all those things then you know you get to look forward to retirement and that's basically like (laughs) linear lifestyle that we're achieving or you know trying to attain but I listened to an audiobook the other day that really kind of hit home with a few ideas on you know like what we're striving for is we spend so much time in our minds, identifying with our own thoughts. And, you know, they're just thoughts. They're not facts. They're just thoughts that we have that, you know, just run through our mind, just like, you know, leaves in the wind, like they just run through our mind. And sometimes we associate with them so much that we kind of lose sight of, you know, that it's just a thought that's passing by. And that's kind of where we get into our like funnel of negativity is once you have a lot of negative thoughts coming by, you really, you identify with them. And they're just thoughts. They're not true they're not necessarily fact but we treat them that way it becomes like really hard on our psyche because you know if you have a a day where you wanted to get something done and if you miss a workout or you didn't do this or you're just like oh I'm so lazy and then that negative comment turns into five more and then at the end of it you know it could just be 30 seconds you're feeling like crap (laughs) you've you've listened to yourself put yourself down but uh the basic pain that we mostly experience from, you know, like trying to achieve or be an achiever is the present moment. The pain that we are in, in the present moment is because we're not where we want to be. And that usually means we want to be somewhere in the future. Like we're waiting for something in the future. Like I'll be happy when I have this, that, and the other, I have my perfect job or, you know, I make this much money or, you know, I find a, a partner, I fall in love, or if I have a family or there's all these things in the future that we kind of like have these finish lines of, you know, I'm going to feel better when I, when I cross that line. And that's not necessarily true. It's once we get there, what do we want? We want more, you know, like you're just also, no matter where you are, whatever present moment you're in, you're yearning for something that you don't have yet. <laughs> so it's never ending. That's what I mean. There is no yeah, finish no line. There's no, perfect, there's no ending. And I, it relieves a lot of personal stress if you, if you can realize that like this present moment is the only tangible thing that you have. What you do in this moment, it dictates the future that you're going to have. But if you spend all of your present time trying to think about, you know, like, ruminate on things that have happened in the past or if you're worried about things that are going to happen in the future and that's how you spend all your present moments you are are really 
ignoring the life that you have in front of you, you know? And I think that's where a lot of like gratitude practice really comes into play is because if you, if you start looking around and what you have, the things that are precious to you right now, if you focus more on how to keep those feelings alive in the present moment, you're going to be much more happier and preparing yourself for better expectations for your future. You're not spending all your time focusing on, okay, I won't be happy until I make $100,000, then I'll be happy. <laughs> it's, you know, more money, more problems. My financial advisor says, for how much money you have, you everybody still usually has the same amount of debt yeah. it, percentage wise, right? But because you have more money, you assume that you're going to be more, have more happiness. And, you know, once you get there and you realize you don't, then you did all of this work and sacrifice all of these things to get the money you want. And you realize that's not actually what made, makes you happy. <laughs> so yeah. it's a lot of work to do to realize that. So that's kind of what I, I try to, you know, instill in the clients that I have right now is what right now makes you f- feel things like what, what is it that makes you want to get up in the morning? And what are the fears that are holding you back? Because most of the fears that we have, we've created, or we have an experience that taught us that that one time, you know, for instance, a fear of dogs, a lot of people are scared of dogs. They had one experience, one experience with a dog that was negative, And that, that completely shuts you off. You, we can do that with anything. You know, you have a bad experience at a job interview. You don't want to go anymore. <laughs> you just, you know, like you just, you hold on to that in your body and that feeling. And you remember what it feels like when you had that negative experience and it prevents you from doing it again. But the likelihood of it happening again is so low, <laughs> but we treat that one experience as if it's the only experience. So mm-hmm. It's a lot of interesting reflection on behavior that I think really informs you about how you respond to things and how you can change how you respond to things. And that really dictates how you handle the present and it's going to dictate how you can move forward in the future. Oh, thank you so much. That's uh, quite detailed. I think we are all human beings at the end of the day and we are Mm -hmm. all addicted to Mm -hmm. happiness. We just mm-hmm. want to be happy. Sometimes it will be maybe getting a bigger car, mm-hmm. maybe to a bigger house, um, going to a better country or just changing right. the environment, going on a holiday. Yeah. You just have to find your happiness, your happy place. Yeah. But I feel we just need to live one day at a time. Just yeah. Yeah, that's the Absolutely. That's my concept these days. I don't really do big plans for the future anymore especially with this COVID-19 exactly yeah it's all brought us to the same level yeah I think that's that's something that's so interesting to me is like on a global level we're all experiencing something together which you know like usually it it's it's pockets you know like different pockets in different places in the world are experiencing you know like a a disease or a natural disaster or, you know, some sort of war unrest where this is completely global. Everyone's experiencing at the same time. So we're all kind of able to connect in a way that we haven't been able to before. We can all agree on what's happening right now. Like it's (laughs) happening everywhere. It can't be ignored. And I think it's brought a lot of people together. For instance, we're sitting here talking and, you know, across the world and we're able to connect on, you know, what this year has been like. But I think that this year has allowed a lot of people to reflect and, you know, a lot of people are home alone with their thoughts and they're not able to be as distracted as they were before. And 
I think some people are coming to realize that, okay, these material things that I've been reaching for aren't actually making me happy. And all of the things that I can do to distract myself that make me think I'm happy aren't really available anymore. You know, you can't go out, you can't... (laughs) you know, hang out with friends or go to a bar or, you know, do all of these outdoor activities in groups that usually brought you a lot of energy. It's just really isolated us alone and helped us understand, like, are we happy with ourselves right now in this moment? Because I can sit here all day and say how sad I am that I wasn't able to travel this year. But (laughs) does my happiness depend on travel? No. No. Do I want to do it when it's able to happen again? Absolutely. But you have to find happiness in the moments that you have right here now in front of you. Because if you can't do that, then you're going to struggle to look for happiness everywhere else. You know, we're looking for it elsewhere. We're looking for it. And it's not something that's necessarily tangible. You can't just get it and hold on to it and keep it, which is, you know, what we are so used to doing with our kind of like material obsession like our consumerism is you can buy something and have it and it's yours it's only yours you don't have to share it with anyone you know like you own it and like when you're kind of achieving that way you're just putting more things in your basket you know it doesn't necessarily mean anything or bring you any more happiness it's very fleeting and with what we're experiencing now it's really important to be able to find your own happiness in the moments that you have by being gracious and having gratitude for the things that are here now and just enjoying simple moments that you realize bring you joy can be just, you know, going for a walk and feeling like the seasons change, like the brisk cold air come in, or it could be just learning a new skill, something that you haven't done before that, you know, like maybe it's knitting and you learn how to knit and the process of you learning that a new skill that you didn't think you could do, like that brings you more happiness than going to the store and buying something because it lasts longer. So I think this, it's, it's very interesting that we're starting to learn to, to really appreciate what we have because, you know, in this kind of climate, there's, there's no guaranteed future. It's very unknown. And I think that's what most people struggle with is, you know, if you're not looking to the future, what are you doing? They feel lost, right? If they're not preparing for something or they're not, like making goals to reach um, something else. But a lot of times it has, it's only to do with possessions or material or monetary things that you're hoping other people are going to look at you and say, wow, she's successful. But that's not necessarily true, right? Like you could be very, very successful and very unhappy. And we really need to separate those two things. Like success doesn't necessarily equal happiness. It can, but the definition of success in society right now is you know it has a lot to do with skill profession status um, <laughs> right so if that's what we think of at, when we hear the word success then you know you're not successful unless you have those things like that's not necessarily true I think that I'm successful even just like having a conversation you know if you're making someone else feel good or if you're learning something from them or they're learning from something from you that's success it's just how you frame it and I think if we reframe what success looks like we're going to see a lot of people more happy with less with what they have and what they have around them and be able to understand that yes I can still reach for success but I don't expect happiness my next question was just going to take you back to your experience with your stress and anxiety. What were the symptoms that you had at that time and how did you cope with that? Okay. When I first started 
having symptoms because it's been a journey. Like <laughs> when I first started having symptoms, I feel like I'll share that because that's, you know, mostly where people are unaware of what's happening. I started having symptoms of what I now know was anxiety. I was very obsessive compulsive. So I also have obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So it's, uh, it's not the same as obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, It's more about like organization and neatness and things like that making me feel less anxious, like just things being put back in their place or things being done a certain way. Like that's kind of what really came out as a symptom. And it was just kind of like a self-soothing kind of thing is like cleaning and you ever clean and you just feel like it makes you feel better oh yeah that's me yeah yeah it's it's like self-soothing I just took it to a whole other level (laughs) so that's when I started noticing like my roommates started noticing my friends started noticing they're like okay like you're irritable if I don't you know, like wipe the counter or you're irritable if I don't put the dishes in the dishwasher properly or just things that like shouldn't cause you stress were causing me stress. But it was just me kind of projecting the stress that I was feeling into something that I could control. And a lot of times that's really what anxiety boils down to is um, you're fearful of things you can't control. Everyone has that and it usually it's fleeting. It doesn't last long, but when you have feelings like that, that last, you know, like two weeks or months or a year, you know, you're constantly in this stress mode where you're trying to find ways to cope. And a lot of times your coping mechanisms are destructive or not positive. So sometimes um, people develop like other issues because of them trying to cope with their anxiety. So because I had so much anxiety that was untreated, I was, I'm an obsessive note taker. (laughs) So I have lists of lists of lists. And that would be like another symptom of me just trying to control things. I was obsessed with my agenda. Like you could, (laughs) I would have like every minute of every day planned. And I was always very busy. Like I didn't leave any time for me to be alone with myself because time alone with myself would be time alone with my thoughts, which would bring a lot of anxiety. So you sort of sought solace. We've been in other people's company. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, like social time, I learned now that it was very exhausting, like uh, always being surrounded by people and then having roommates, being part of a team, going to class as a student, like you're always surrounded by people. So you feel like you you can't you can't show any of those symptoms that, you know, other people are going to notice. So you kind of hide them and mask them in other ways. It's really brilliant. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of similar um, from my teaching experience. It's very similar to um, students who hide they can't read. Yeah, you know they have difficulty reading or they have it's like split personality. You develop ways to deal with it that aren't necessarily helpful in the long term. They help you survive. You know, so you know reading. A lot of students can read the word, but they don't understand what they mean. So when you ask them to read something and they can read it well, you assume that they understand it. They don't. (laughs) They're just reading the words, right? So they've been able to mask it for years because teachers are asking, okay, can you read this? Yes, I can read it. Oh, that sounds great. Okay. (laughs) And then when they go to answer any of the questions, they can't answer the questions because they can't understand what's being asked of them. So it's similar with, you know, mental illness sometimes. And again, this is just my experience. I can't speak for anyone else, but everyone's experiences um, sometimes overlap. Yeah, they sometimes overlap. So I think I think the the biggest part of recognizing that something was wrong, I 
I literally did some of my own research online and I found a quiz and I think I found it on like a Canadian website that was like depressionhurts.ca because I had started developing, you know, like teariness, like not wanting to be around people or, you know, breaking down and crying in the supermarket in like a little hidden corner because I never really had my alone time because I was always, I felt like I, everyone could always see me. (laughs) Even it's one of those like spotlight, you know, syndromes where you think everyone's looking at you, but really no one cares. (laughs) Um, But that's what it feels like when you have anxiety, like you go to the gym, you think everyone's looking at you. Like I remember many times where like, I just had to get up and leave a yoga class because I thought that everyone was judging like how well I was doing it. Like they're just silly little things that you, you have a voice in your head that's telling you these things that really isn't true, but you're so used to being in that stress cycle. You can't break free until, you know, you know, the, you know, the ways to do that. So once I realized that all of these behaviors weren't necessarily normal and other people weren't experiencing them, that's when I did a survey online that really, you know, hit home. And I remember doing it and I remember crying because, you know, I was like, I was devastated. I said, no, I, I can't have anxiety and depression. Like nothing's wrong with like, I didn't experience a childhood trauma. I didn't, you know, nothing. I had a good childhood, nothing bad happened to me. So I thought that like only things, like only people who experience, you know, some negative thing in their past got anxiety and depression because that's just what I knew about it at the time. So I was devastated to learn that, oh my God, this is what's happening to me. And where most people usually feel relief being like, okay, now I know what's wrong with me. I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) I can't have this. Like, this is going to be really hard because there are people in my family and people that I know that, you know, do suffer from mental illness as well. And actually I hate saying suffer, but survive with and manage mental illness. But I think I was just, I was worried about judgment more than I was worried about my own health. And I think that's where, you know, like things have changed uh, like a lot, you know, that was about 10 years ago, I'd say. So there's a lot more awareness out there that, you know, this is normal and this is a lot of people are experiencing these things, but especially since like 2020, you know, a lot more people were alone. A lot more people were coming to the realization that they were unhappy or that things weren't going the way they wanted to. And they start seeing these behaviors in themselves that they didn't see before because they were so busy and so good at masking it in their current schedule and lifestyle that when you come home and you have to be home and work from home and spend time with, you know, people that you, we usually try to hide things from people we love the most for some reason we feel that it's going to destroy them or it's going to make them look at us differently or it's going to be something that's disappointing. And so I think a lot of times we, we shelter them and we do that because anxiety makes you feel like a burden. Because um, if you can't control it, how is anyone else going to help, you know? Uh, but that's that's just some of the things that, you know, the thoughts that mental illness kind of just like yeah. brings for, you know, forward in your mind that's like a louder voice than everything else. Mental illness is so underrated and lots of people are going through it and Mm -hmm. it is so scary sometimes Mm -hmm. and I know a lot of people actually get suicidal Mm -hmm. yeah well I think that's I think that's like the that result um is really society's fault to me because we shame people into feeling like, okay, if you can't cope with these things and you can't do this and you can't get better, then 
like just ignore it, you know, like, and sometimes people do come out and they tell their families and they tell friends and things and, you know, they, they don't necessarily have a support system around them that believes what they're going through is real. And, you know, that's a, a whole different level of, um, of pain, you know, like people not acknowledging that what you're feeling, what you're going through is, is a medical issue. And I think the awareness helps with that. But my biggest, my biggest, like, dream for intervention is, you know, before you get to the point of feeling that everything is not worth living another moment, I think that it's really, really important that not only are we, like, talking about the awareness, but, you know, pushing people to support people that they know that, you know, you know that something's not going right with somebody, you know, know them well enough, you know, if you're acquaintances, it's not as easy, but, you know, really like reach out and talk to that person because, you know, they might just be in their own head um, for so long that they're unable to even connect with other people about it because they're so ashamed or, you know, they've, they've been taught to be ashamed of it. And I think that's why it's so important that we like intervene and we provide healthcare to intervene before it gets up, you know, like we need to start talking about it earlier and then we're going to be able to kind of help people save themselves from that fate. You know, I think that that is the most important is the support systems that we need to have around us. Um, each of us are responsible for kind of creating our own support system. But for those who might not have it, like we need to have those social nets that um, can help intervene earlier. And um, I'm not sure what it's like where you are, but here in Canada, you know, we have a lot of supports for um, young people who are experiencing, oh, yes, we do. you know, like students. Um, and then we have supports for like, like adults who are experiencing mental illness that are really sick. But if you're like high functioning, you know, if you're someone who's working every day, you know, you're making money, but you're still really, you know, experiencing some of those issues. Those are the people that we're missing. And we wait until someone gets to the point of burnout or, you know, having to go on medical leave or sick leave because they're so sick because they haven't dealt with it. And there isn't any interventions to deal with it prior to that. So it's either you are too sick and you have to go off work to be able to get the help that you need. And not that that's too late. It's just it could have been prevented. And that's kind of what I I've, am frustrated with the healthcare system is, you know, these things can be prevented if you put the money and the programming in in an earlier intervention for people that are struggling and a lot of times it's you know a lot of people from once you're out of out of you know um public school at the age of 18 you're kind of like okay good luck there's no programs for you there's no employee assistant program for you if you're not um, working there's no health care for you for to see a psychologist or a life coach or a counselor if you're not working there is some community programming um, but it's so uh, backed up because there's so many people waiting for services for instance I'll give an example which you know I'm very lucky that I had the support system that I had but Um, I was one of those people who went off work. I put it off, I put it off, I put it off. Um, And even though I started to deal with it in university, I, you know, I didn't really like dig deep enough to prevent it from happening again. So I found myself at the age of 28 burnt out and I had to go off work and I had to like admit that I still had all of these issues that weren't yet dealt with and weren't yet manageable. And so it forced me to go off work to be able to take care of myself. And when I did, and I searched for help, the local um, like community health programming, I think it was in, like the 
4th of April, perhaps like 2016 that I went off and I wasn't able to get an appointment with a counselor until July. Oh, wow. So imagine, you know, people who are in crisis going and seeking out help and trying to get help and saying, okay, you need to wait four months, like three or four months to get the help you need. Like how many people in that time frame of four months, like some people don't have four months, like it's an emergency, you know, like they need to see somebody now. So like, those are, those are moments where I'm like, okay, the healthcare system is failing so many people because it should never get to that point where people feel, you know, so lost and so alone and so, so tossed aside by society that they, they feel like there's no other way forward. And I think that that is, you know, that's a societal issue. I don't think it's a mental health issue. I think it's a healthcare issue. Oh yeah, definitely. I do recognize this as a healthcare issue. Here in the UK, we have organizations, there's MIND, which is an organization that helps with mental health problems. So Mm -hmm. if you have any urgent crisis, you just ring them. And Mm -hmm. there's always somebody at the end of the phone to speak to. And Mm -hmm. there's CALM. And there's crisis helpline. There's the Samaritans as well. So Mm -hmm. they, all these organizations, even ringing the emergency helpline, there will always be somebody at the end of the line to talk Mm -hmm. to. Because I know here, even the fire services, sometimes they do have that helpline available. And the emergency helpline is 999. Mind, um, the number for them here in the UK is 0300-123-3393. They are available Monday to Friday. And the calm is on 0800-585858. That's 0800-585858. And they are available every day from 5 p.m. until midnight. So these are organizations that help people to cope. If anybody's feeling anxious about anything, just pick your phone and uh, speak to somebody on these phone numbers and they would be happy to talk to you. And in America, I know the Trevor Project focuses on suicide prevention and they also offer training for lesbians, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning young people under the age of 25. That's the LGBT community under the age of 25. So they, if you're a young person under the age of 25 and you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please pick up your phone and speak to somebody. There's also the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and there's Hope for Depression. And in Illinois, we have the Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Also in Virginia, there's the National Mental Health Association, and they have branches in Washington, D.C. And Anywhere you are, all over the world, wherever you are listening to the podcast, because I know people listening to the podcast all over the world. So just call your emergency number. It might be 999, it might be 111, it might be 911, whatever the number is, there will be somebody to talk to at the end of the phone. Yeah, I that's awesome. Thanks so much for, you know, shouting those out. I think it's so important, especially when we're talking about, you know, um, caring for yourself. (laughs) 
it's scary to reach out. It really is. But honestly, when you hear the voice of someone else who understands what's going on, it is such a relief. You'll literally feel your body relax and feel like you're being heard and be able to talk without having any judgment. And you'll probably, you know, feel a lot better about your situation just knowing that someone is there to listen and like really reach out. I know it's a stranger, you know, they're there for a reason and they're there to help and it will literally lift so much weight off your shoulders. Just the first phone call alone. I know for me, when I was able to even reach out to a counselor and like, just, just the conversation, just the fact that I knew that they were on my side just made me feel so much better about what I was going through and that it made it feel like something I could surpass and I could get through with the help so you know make that phone call even if you're unsure and you think a lot of people diminish what their mental health issues are you know like if you feel that you know you have a little bit of anxiety just give them a call you know talk it out talk it through they can help validate you and you know maybe give you some tips on how you can help you know make that feeling you know less dominant in your life so it's worth a phone call and you know you never know um like what supports they can and path they can put you on and you know just know that you don't have to feel the way you feel definitely yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for that input as well um i also wanted to know like for you were there triggers for your anxiety was there any particular things that also helped you cope better with this um, some of my triggers and coping mechanisms, my triggers, they become less and less and less. And I think it, I think, I think it just really like, I give them less energy, you know, like if you have a lot of fear about something, the more you think about it and fear it, the more power you give it. Yeah. Um, mine always used to be, uh, the unknown. Like I, that's why I was obsessed with an agenda. I was like, I, mm-hmm. I need to know what's going on. I need to know what's going on next week. What about next month? Uh, what's my plan for next year? And it really just like made me run on empty all the time because I was never enjoying the moment I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always trying to escape the moment I was in and and plan for, for the future. Once I graduated university, that's when I really felt like, you know, the black hole of the future. I had no idea. <laughs> my life had been planned for me for so many years, you know, when you're in school uh, to your grade 12. And like, because I was able and fortunate enough to go to post-secondary studies. um, Once I graduated from university, that's when I really felt that like, oh no, what am I going to do with my life? I'm an adult now, but I've really learned to control uh, fears and take hold of fears. So a lot of things that, that ruled my anxiety were fear-based so you know fear of not uh, being good enough fear of not making my family proud fear of not you know being successful fear of you know just fear of the future of what it holds just because it's the unknown just because it's not necessarily predictable and that's really what made me you know paralyzed was not knowing how to move forward and I think all I really need to do is focus on present moment and you know the the small things that brought me happiness that I had been searching for elsewhere coping mechanisms I found um like I I can't put enough emphasis on um speaking to other people whether it's a counselor or a friend um I I just think it allows you to hear your own voice and your own opinions um and that's why I believe in life coaching so much is um even though I'm not a counselor or a psychologist I'm trained to understand the psychology and the 
brain mechanisms that we use to kind of come up with the ideas that we have or the habits that we have or the, you know, the mantras that we have about ourselves. And I think that really looking within is where we find the power on how to kind of grasp and take back control of how we think, what we think, and the time we spend on thinking about those things. So, you know, the more time and energy and space you give to your fears, the more space in your brain it takes up. So it literally is just feeding the fire. So you almost have to train your brain to think differently. And I think that's what took me the most time. And it does take time. It's like working a muscle, you know, like you're not going to all of a sudden have biceps because you lifted up five pounds once today. You know, it's not going to be overnight. You really have to like work your brain like a muscle. And after years of having self-talk that's really negative, it takes time to learn how to reroute the way you think about yourself. And I think no matter what your trigger is and no matter what your management technique is, it, it just has to be addressed. And I think that's the hardest part is taking that first step to being like, okay, this is a trigger. How can I take the power away from that? Thank you. I really appreciate you being completely open and honest about your experience and sharing it to help other people who might be in a similar situation as you. And for me, it sounds like you were just putting so much pressure on yourself to prove yourself, to prove your worth to your family. And at that point, when you finished from college, when you graduated from university, you were not sure what was going to happen. So you had a gap period and that's when you felt really empty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was like, okay, this is a period. It was supposed to be like a gap period in your life to go to the next stage of your life right because you were so used to a regimented life in college so to say Mm -hmm. then you just couldn't function and that's when you had the burnout um I first I first um like experienced it in university I was in getting my bachelor of education degree and that's when things really started to I'd say deteriorate into, you know, what my biggest mental health issues were at the time. But, you know, I, I sought out help. I got the support that I needed at the time. But then we all kind of think things are a quick fix. So I kind of push it to the side and I started my teaching career. And that's the other thing that is kind of funny is, you know, like, like I said, we were reaching for success all the time and it doesn't necessarily make you happy. You know, like I, I was so privileged, you know, I, I was able to go to university I just graduated with my second degree all of the success and happiness that is supposed to come along with that like I didn't even allow myself to experience it I was just so paralyzed by what was coming next because I I hadn't stepped into the work world in a profession before I've I've worked many different jobs but not as a profession like not everything I worked for (laughs) so uh when I went into my teaching profession and I worked there for about three years, you know, like that's what was so devastating about stepping away from teaching was, you know, I had worked basically academically my whole life for that profession. And I found that that profession really exacerbated my mental health symptoms. So I had to make a choice at that time. It was, you know, was, is it my profession or is it my health? And I realized at the time, you know, with the support that I had that 
I wasn't able to continue the profession if I didn't have my health. Exactly. So, That's what I was going to say. You have to yeah. be healthy to be able to have a profession. Exactly. So it was very scary and it was probably the, the hardest decision I've ever had to make. And, you know, I had in Nova Scotia, I'm, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK for, you know, um, probably obviously different in, in different areas. Uh, but, you know, the job market is not <laughs> very lucrative here <laughs> so you know i mean right now it's that i mean no yeah. way the world has lucrative systems <laughs> everywhere we're all going yeah. through lows and job losses and you know right so you can imagine the the judgment that i received when i was like i'm gonna step away from this very secure very financially great job with a union and a pension and you know like all of these perks <laughs> people were like you're nuts what are you doing <laughs> but I I really had to make a choice like I had to mute everyone else and say okay if I continue working what's going to happen and I was more fearful of that choice because I had already reached what I what I knew was the bottom and I was like I don't think I can continue and be safe for myself so it really like it was a choice but the way I look at it it wasn't a choice you know like I had to choose my health I can get another job I can do another profession if need be but at that moment I was I was more concerned about you know my health and well-being at the time and I wasn't willing to sacrifice that for a job I wasn't willing to sacrifice that for money even though it was very painful and I almost had to like grieve the fact that I spent all this time working towards career that I'm now stepping away from it was hard for a lot of people to understand and it was hard for me to understand and deal with but I would never change it I spent about six months kind of retraining myself on who I am my identity like I said I lost a lot of that when you know once once I went from being an athlete I went from being an athlete to being a teacher (laughs) and then I went from being a teacher to not being a teacher (laughs) so I was really lost you know like I was really lost at at, I was grasping for you know who I am and what I am and what I stand for and because those two things didn't belong to me anymore or weren't present in my life I I was really lost in what what is it that you know, is going to help move me forward. And what do I identify with that's going to move me forward? But Mm -hmm. that's why I started focusing more on things that were tangible every day, you know, something that I could hold or touch or feel every day Mm -hmm. to a job or didn't belong to an, you know, an identity or a position or a title. And that's what really helped me find happiness in my everyday instead of searching for it in success. Oh, thank you. So you you just strike me as a goal-oriented person. You mm. have to have a goal every day. That's, uh, that's the way I see you. You want to know the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, want to know every detail in between the beginning and the end. So, yeah. <laughs> so this is why you you struggle at it. What's your driving force now? I think my driving force is on authenticity, and you know, like that's why I want to guest on your podcast. Is you know, I want to be open and I want to be completely transparent and show people that you don't have to like hide behind you know mental illness you don't have to be quiet about it and a lot of people think that you know if you come out and you say it people are going to look at you differently and like yeah they might but the people that are in my tribe are are the people that are going to be you know like you who are understanding that are like yes more people need to be open about it so that we can all normalize it because I think more 
it's more normal than not to have feelings of anxiety or feelings of depression, whether it's, you know, a lifelong thing or if it's chronic or if it's just for the moment. Learning how to cope with that is the most important thing, whether you have mental illness or not. No matter what, you're going to experience these feelings and learning how to cope with them is going to help you, you know, be able to get out of that funk faster. So that's kind of where my my goal is 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 set and yeah I am very very structured usually (laughs) but you know that's been part of my journey is learning how to you know like take some of that structure out and be more comfortable with the unknown and that's really helped me build a better day-to-day life than always expecting to be happier in the future I think that I've become really really comfortable with myself and um you know if I have I I work intuitively a lot so if I have the if I have all of the energy that I need, um, like I use that day to the full advantage, um, knowing that, you know, tomorrow, maybe I, I'm going to be fatigued. Maybe I'm not going to feel well, you know, you never know. So I try to use the energy when I have it. And I think that's really, really important for people who are recovering with mental illness. It really affects your energy levels, especially depression. Um, anxiety affects your energy levels in a different way for everyone. But a lot of times it can make you a little bit more jittery. Um, it can make you feel like you constantly have to be doing something because um, your, your thoughts are just kind of like running like a mile a minute. So you know, try to be kind to yourself when you're recovering from, you know, having like a real, I would say like, not a breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> I've had, I have those. Um, but uh, I think it, we just have to be more intuitive with our body and yeah. understanding that, you know, if you feel fatigued, you know, pushing yourself to do something that you know you can't accomplish today is only going to set yourself up to feel like crap about it, you know? So, you know, do things that day that are, are that, align with how you feel and know that tomorrow's a fresh day and you know those chores can wait till tomorrow you know that work that work can wait till tomorrow you know if you're going to be more efficient the next day that's kind of what happens to me is I know that like this is going to take me three hours to do but if I wait until tomorrow it'll take me half an hour (laughs) I just know myself well enough and my energy levels well enough now because um so I'm not working against myself anymore I'm working with myself and I find it's just it's just makes for a better outcome altogether. No, oh, thank you. So you now set achievable targets for yourself. Mm-hmm. Within the yeah, day. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes building habits is really hard. Um, you just have to start slow. And that's what I do with a lot of my clients. Some, some clients are like, you know, I don't eat until four o'clock. How can I change that? It's very simple, right? Okay, you know, eat three meals a day. Like we all know, you know, we all know these things, but it's like, okay, how do I actually set goals that's going to eventually allow me to do that? I yeah, don't like eat until I know I feel like I'm going to faint. No, these days I set alarms on my phone <laughs> to remind me to. Eat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's that's that would be like exactly what I would suggest to a client. You know, like set an alarm. Um, it makes you think about eating because usually sometimes you just get really caught in up in what you're doing. And, you know, a lot of people when they're at work, you know, like they would wait until the end of the day until they could have a home cooked meal or you know, they bring their lunch to work and they don't eat it. So if you're not able to like sit down and eat a whole meal, I'm not going to tell you to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to suggest that. And I'm, you know, like you get to make your own goals, but, you know, setting an alarm, that's a perfect stepping stone. So 
now you have trained your brain to think about eating. So now you can actually start introducing small snacks. And over time, you're going to build your appetite so that, you know, when that alarm goes off, you're going to be hungry. Yeah. So, you know, keep doing what you're doing, but just take it, take it slow because, you know, we usually do all of our work during the day, eat at night. <laughs> and that's not when we need our energy. We need our energy during the day. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been such an exciting and very eye-opening episode. Um, one more thing I would like to ask is, knowing what you now know about yourself, about mental illness and uh, burnout and everything that you've gone through, would you have done things differently? Oh, I always say I wouldn't have done things differently. I think that, you know, like, I really believe that everything we experience brings some lesson to our lives that is is really important. Like what's put on our path is, you know, meant for us to learn something. And I think we just have to be open to learning that. You know, a lot of times we have these opportunities pass us by and we, you know, ignore them because we're so strictly on the path to whatever we're trying to achieve. Um, but be open to, you know, those things that come in front of you, the possibilities, the opportunities, the people. And um, I, like, I just, I just think life is so interesting. And I look for those signs and signals, <laughs> you know, that I'm on the right the right path and there's lots of moments of serendipity and those are things that help me um, move forward you know if I if I meet someone that you know I help that day or they help me and it just those are the kind of moments that you know make me feel like I'm in the right place at the right time and I think the more you look for those the more they're there because they've always been there but we've just been so distracted by other things you know by what we think is important in our day-to-day life that you know we don't take the moments to stop and smell of flowers so to say (laughs) and I think it's just it's slowing down to be present that really helps you you do that because you you become more in, in tune with yourself and for those of those people out there who are you know looking for ways to just start doing this on their own it can be private and it can be something that's just for you and yourself is journaling I know it sounds like keeping a diary as like a teenage girl but it really is powerful because when you write down the words you're really able to see and hear yourself where you know we're always in our own head we don't have conversations with ourselves so we can't really see what we're really thinking and where our attitudes really are Um, but when you journal them you know you can look back a week and be like wow I like I was so positive that day or you know I was so negative that day like where did that come from because you only have the clarity that you have for hindsight is 2020 but you learn from that you know you learn from your own experiences expressing yourself oh yeah that's such a good idea well I'm not I'm not one of those people that keep journals I just go through each day as it comes It's that, like you know you're you're doing these podcasts like you know it doesn't have to be written it can be just reflecting it can yeah. be just speaking with other people like any way that you're able to converse or like share your opinion or share part of yourself yeah. like that is a way to reflect it you know so you're learning you know just like you said like I'm learning so much from you you're learning so much from all the people that you're interviewing and like that's a way to learn more about yourself right definitely (laughs) oh yeah thank you so how has the pandemic impacted on your approach to coaching what are the things that you are now doing differently um 
differently is I'm home a lot, <laughs> but I think that did you did you used to go to your clients or they came to you before the pandemic? Um, it, we were able to meet in person, but you know, with coaching actually kind of goes hand in hand with um, you know the new Zoom world. Yeah. So we're able to connect over over Zoom or any you know teleconferencing technology, Same, um, yeah. and it's actually made it easier for people to access the support. You know, you don't have to take the time out of your schedule to go somewhere. It's also, you know, in the comfort of your own home. You don't have to get, you know, dressed up and you don't have to go, you know, something I like about life coaching as well is like, I always found it a barrier to go to a psychologist's office or to go to a counselor's (laughs) office and sit in this room um, and talk to a stranger. Um, There was no comfort for me. There's tons of comfort for the, the, you know, the, the professional, but there was no comfort for me. So I find this, you know, it's helpful where, you know, especially people I want to, I want to help serve people with, you know, dealing with mental illness trying to manage it, just discovering it, um, trying to cope as well as like anyone else who's just interested in, in, you know, personal growth and development. But I think that being in your own space, especially when you have a mental illness or, you know, you have some, you know, some things you want to work on that, you know, puts you in a very, um, vulnerable state it's much easier to do that in the comfort of your own home where you feel safe than it is to go to a you know a strange place and you know sit on a couch like that isn't yours <laughs> in someone else's space so I, f- I find that it, it's actually really helpful and it's you know it's easier to access you know it's available to anybody who has technology um yeah. and you can still meet in person given you know whatever the health protocols are uh where you're living but I think that it it creates, um, you know, a much more accessible way to connect with someone who can help you with, you know, what you're dealing with day to day. And, you know, it gives everyone access, you know, people that are, you know, working from home, people that are working in an office, like you can still, you can still tap into the technology. And it also helps people that, you know, they have to be home because they have children or family or they're caring for someone, you know, which can be, have a lot of stress and burden on its own during these times you know a lot of parents are trying to homeschool their kids <laughs> and they have, you know like there there's just so many extra hats that people are wearing these days um that you know we built a society so that you didn't have to do that so it's just, it's very hard on everyone in different ways and I just I think that the technology that's here we're able to connect across the world which is so cool and it creates a space where you know you can dictate when you have a meeting, what time, and, you know, you can be in your pajamas if you want, if that makes you feel comfortable, (laughs) you know, you don't have to worry about like going out in public. And so I hope that that makes it more um, accessible. But um, I found that people are just struggling with, you know, the day-to-day routine um, because they used, it used to be dictated by someone else, you know, like work or school or, you know, whatever other things that you are do are usually doing throughout the day, you know, they're, they're dictated by uh, coronavirus now, you know, all the health yeah. protocols. So um, being at home and, you know, not used to having a routine at home has kind of like jumbled up everyone's ideas of what their day looks like. And some of the clients that I'm working with, it's very simple what we're doing. We're just helping people rebuild and establish a routine that is intuitive with, you know, what they need to accomplish each day instead of a lot of people who are working from home are struggling with being able to have a routine and being so close to their couch and taking breaks. And, you know, it 
is more motivating to kind of get up and leave your house and, and work elsewhere because you're in public. You kind of have to work <laughs> versus being at home and kind of it's a little bit more relaxed. So it's hard to keep a, a, a routine and habit when um, you never really have to leave your space to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for all the insights that you've shared today. Do you have any last words for anyone in a similar situation as yours? I think that, you know, be honest with yourself about how you're feeling. You know, you have to do that first before you can reach out to anyone else. Um, And I think that's the most important step is just to be like honest with how you're feeling. If you're not sure how you're feeling, um, you know, do some research. Take, you know, take like an online quiz that's, you know, from a government site, <laughs> mind you. Um, you know, the one I used was depressionhurts.ca. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot of, you know, scientific medically backed quizzes that kind of help you decide, you know, do I really need to reach out for help right now? Is it, yeah. is it going to be in my best interest? Um, and if not, like some of the hotlines that you mentioned, you know, all of the, those are there to help cope and manage. And it might be a great stepping stone. Um, into being able to understand yourself more, you know, be more efficient in, in caring for yourself and then, you know, be more efficient at whatever goals you're trying to reach. So it just starts with that first step of being honest with yourself and, and saying, you know what, I think I need a little bit of support with this. And, you know, the earlier you do it, the earlier you're going to feel better. That's my, that's my biggest advice. You know, don't wait oh. until you have to don't wait until you have to leave work or don't wait until, you know, you're going to be um, feeling really, really sick. Um, it's just a longer road back to recovery. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest advice would be just to recognize that it's an illness. It's there. And if mm-hmm. you're not feeling great, if you're not sure of how you're feeling and you feel low or you're just emotional, pick up the phone, talk to your doctor and mm-hmm. If you can't get to your doctor, speak to a counselor or just chat to somebody online. There are so many facilities on the internet these days that people can use. There's a crisis helpline. In the UK, there's an emergency room for people who have mental illnesses. So if you just feel depressed or you feel really suicidal, you need to go to the emergency room straight away. And they would still attend to you regardless of COVID-19 going on. Thank you so much. I really Thank appreciate you. your time today. Nice talking to you. Yeah, all the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please download and share with your friends and family and on social media platforms. We are available on Apple Google, Amazon, Spotify, Listening Notes, Podchaser, Good Pods, Radio Public, Stitcher, Deezer, Pocket Cast, Himalaya, and anywhere you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review, comment, or feedback on our social media platforms on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and also on our website www.podbean.com Thank you very much.